1618, a council met in the Netherlands in a city called Dort, uh, which would forever impact the Protestant Reformation. The Synod of Dort, which produced today what is called the Canons of Dort, had a monumental effect on Reformed theology, which continues even to this day. However, the council that met in Dort was actually taking a reactionary approach to something. It was a reactionary measure. For there was a Reformed theologian being trained in the Calvinistic schools named Jacobus Arminius, who began to question many of the key teachings of the Reformed understanding of how a person is saved. Thus, this Arminius and many of his disciples sort of led a movement known as the Remonstrance. Uh, today, we just refer to them as Arminians. We've kind of simplified it. But for them, they were the Remonstrance movement. And they met and basically formulated five points of doctrine where they disagreed with what they were getting and hearing from the Reformed schools. And so the Synod of Door was a council that met to respond to those five points of doctrine. And so that's why the canons of Dort are structured under five headings of theology. But this document is, is, is fairly long and it's a little complex. And so someone somewhere, we don't actually really know who or how this happened, sort of repackaged and summarized the canons of Dort into a really simple little acronym that today we know as TULIP. T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. Now, TULIP is by no means like the extent of Reformed theology by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's just a really small part of Reformed theology. And it really doesn't make sense until you see it in its context with the broader sort of covenantal position. But nevertheless, because TULIP is a summary of the canons of Dort, and because our church affirms the canons of Dort, we, by extension, affirm TULIP. Now, if you were to ask me, what is TULIP and can you prove it? I would have to engage in a sermon series where I would take each point, point by point, and I would try to go to a lot of different Bible passages to try to prove it. But by God's grace, our Lord Jesus Christ one time preached a sermon in a synagogue in Capernaum that I believe actually encompasses all five of these points at one time. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6? John chapter 6. We're going to read a pretty lengthy portion of Scripture for our text this morning. We're going to read verses 22 through 47. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John 6, beginning in verse 22. Thus saith the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him there, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. John 6 has always been one of my personal favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And I'm not alone in this, by the way. Uh, Many, many people see this as a very, very special and important chapter in the book of John and in the Bible itself. And why I and others appreciate it so much, I hope, will become apparent over the next three or four weeks as we study this chapter. For we are about to embark upon what is often referred to as the bread of life discourse. Jesus' famous bread of life discourse, wherein Jesus preaches sort of an interactive sermon in a synagogue in Capernaum wherein he is claiming to be bread from heaven that gives life to the world. It was, after all, if you remember from last week, it was his miracle of feeding the thousands. And we said not just 5,000, that's just the men. Tens of thousands were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. And that is sort of the background that established the context for this entire discourse. His public miracle of feeding them with bread. And so after Jesus fed them, if you recall, he eventually left because they were going to seek to force him to become king. So he he runs away, and then the disciples go out in the boat, and he walks on water, and then he gets on the boat with them, and then they go to Capernaum. So the crowd, they're all sitting back waiting. When's Jesus coming back? We're hungry. We're hungry again. When's he coming back? And they see all these boats coming to shore from Tiberias, but Jesus and the disciples aren't on them. So like, okay, we want some food. Let's go find this guy. So they make an educated guess. He's probably in Capernaum. That's sort of where everybody goes. So they go to Capernaum. And lo and behold, we're told at the end of the chapter that they eventually apparently found him in a synagogue. And so they approach him and they try to make small talk. But Jesus quickly cuts them off at the pass. Jesus cuts them off knowing their hearts, knowing their impure intentions And he cuts right to the chase. You see, Jesus understands that they're just coming for more miracles. They just want more food. 
They just want more of these exciting spectacles. And so Jesus says, enough with the miracles. You've had your fill of the loaves. You've had your fear, your fill of the excitement. It's time to preach the gospel. If you recall, what did we learn last week? That this crowd missed the spiritual significance of Jesus' miracle. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the gospel that was being portrayed there. They were focused just on the bread. They were focused just on the carnal. And so Jesus says, I'm done with it. I'm just going to be crystal clear and I'm going to force them to encounter the spiritual. And so he tells them, stop working for bread that perishes. You can eat bread every day and you're just going to get more hungry. It will never actually save you. It will never actually satisfy you. And start working for the bread that will always and forever satisfy you. So he continues this metaphor into the gospel. And we have to ask the question, what is the bread that satisfies and how can we partake of it? Right? If it's, if it's a spiritual bread, you can't eat this with your teeth. You can't eat this with your mouth. How do you partake of spiritual bread? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. Faith. Faith is spiritual eating. If you want to eat with your soul, you believe. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has Sent. This verse is very important for it sets up the theme for the rest of the chapter. The rest of John chapter 6 is Jesus expounding upon what became known in the Reformation as a principle called sola fide. That we are saved by faith and by faith alone. That we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to be saved. That is the only condition of the covenant of grace and it is the only way to partake of our heavenly bread. You must believe in Jesus. That's what he was trying to communicate when he multiplied the loaves. But the Jews, unfortunately, after Jesus very clearly, and he's not talking metaphor anymore, right? You must believe in him whom he has sent, right? There's no metaphor now. This is crystal clear gospel call. Repent and believe. And unfortunately, the Jews do not respond in faith. As a matter of fact, they not only don't respond in faith, they actually use Jesus' gospel message to turn it around and coax him into doing more miracles. Right? Look at verses 30 through 33 with me. So they said to him, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they immediately, after Jesus calls them to repent and believe, they demand proof. Why should we believe you? Give us evidence, give us a sign, give us a reason that we should believe that you are the one that the Father sent. Even though he just did. And he's been doing it. Recall even further, why did the crowds, why were they following Jesus in the first place before he fed them the bread? Because they saw the miracles he was doing in Jerusalem. Jesus has provided plenty of proof. 
And he knows it. And that's why he refuses to get distracted. He refuses to take their red herring and run off and, and start becoming a little parlor trick guy and just constantly meeting these people's demands. He says, no, I'm done with your excuses. It's time to accept the gospel. And so he keeps them focused. They ask for proof. They ask for a miracle. He ignores them. He corrects their bad theology. And then he calls them to repentance again. We saw last week how Jesus right now is proving that he is the new Moses and, and the Jews are still thinking, they're still making that right connection between Jesus and Moses. And so that's the miracle they point to. Like how did Moses prove himself? How did, how did the Jews know Moses was worth following? Well, it's because he was constantly, every day, raining bread from heaven, right? For Moses, it wasn't just a one-time trick on the mountain. It was every single day. So the Jews are saying, why don't you just keep giving us bread and then we'll believe you. And so Jesus uses not only his own miracle, but now the Exodus 16 story of the manna from heaven to again preach the gospel to them. And he teaches them about how that story in Exodus 16 was actually a typological story of the gospel itself. That in the same way that God, the, the people of God were hungry, and so God sent from heaven bread to the earth to fulfill their hunger, Jesus is saying that's the gospel. That story is not actually about Moses, it's not actually about Israel, it's about me. For now in the new covenant, God sees his people who are spiritually hungry. And so he has sent from heaven a true bread that can meet their spiritual hunger. Jesus refuses to get sidetracked and he preaches the gospel to them. And guess what? They still don't believe. Verses 34 through 36. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Even after all of the miracles, all of the gospel preaching, they remain in their unbelief. How do we make sense of that? How do we understand this? What more could someone do? He's preached the gospel. He's proved it with miracles. Why is there no faith happening? What's, what's the problem going on here? And so this unbelief, in the midst of all of this evidence, in the midst of all of this pure gospel teaching, their continued unbelief prompts Jesus to then launch into a sermon that teaches us about God's sovereignty and salvation. In other words, Jesus' own consolation for their unbelief and his explanation for their unbelief ultimately stems back to who is the final arbiter of salvation. And since the canons of Dort, summarized by this novel TULIP acronym, serve to sort of be a summary of how God is sovereign in salvation, it should be no surprise that I think TULIP is found in John 6 where Jesus is now explaining to us God's sovereignty, his role in the salvation of men. I think that what we call TULIP is in this text, whether explicitly or implicitly. So let me tell you what TULIP is, and then I want to show you why some of these summarized doctrines I believe Jesus is teaching from his very own lips. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity. 
total depravity. Now, technically, all Christians believe in total depravity, at least to some degree or another. Because all Christians affirm that we, the, the human race is affected by sin. We inherit a sinful condition and a sinful guilt from Adam. Our forefather Adam has corrupted the human nature. And we all even agree on the total part. So humans aren't just depraved, they're totally depraved. And what that means is that there's no part of your constitution that is not affected by sin. Meaning, there are, you are not a simple being, you are a complex being. You are made up of body, mind, soul, desires, passions. There's, we are complex creatures, but every part of that is touched by sin. Right? It's not like your body is sinful, but your mind is pure. No, every part of the human constitution is affected by sin, total depravity. All Christians affirm that. Where we in the Reformed theology get ourselves in trouble is that we see total depravity as having far more of a debilitating effect than the other traditions do. We think it's much more serious than any other Christian thinks it is. For we believe that mankind is so corrupted by sin that it is impossible for a human being not just to believe the gospel but to even want it. The gospel will always be foolishness to natural man. It will always be undesirable to you. You can not want Jesus in your natural state. That's just how much sin has affected you. The canons of Dort put it this way. All people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even dispose themselves to such reform. You can't even want reform without the Holy Spirit. That's how depraved we are. And I think Jesus actually teaches us this extreme. It might sound extreme to you, but I think Jesus makes it very clear. I think he approves of Dort's summary there. Look at verse 44 with me. We're going to look at this verse a lot today. So I hope you have it memorized by the time we leave. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus states, in my opinion, as clearly as one can state, that we are unable to come to Christ in faith unless God on the outside does something to us first. But left to ourselves, you can't come. You cannot come to Christ apart from a work of God. Left to your own fallen nature, you will always happily remain in your unbelief. No matter the evidence you are given, no matter the, the, the arguments you're given, you will remain in your unbelief unless God does something in you first. By the way, this doctrine is one of two reasons why Reformed theologians are oftentimes accused of denying free will. That's kind of like our MO. They're, they're the people who don't believe in free will. And that's really a little too simplistic. Um, this is a very complicated philosophical issue. We, we believe people have free will, but the, the crux of the issue is what do you even mean by that? Like what is free will at a metaphysical level? It's, it's not an easy question to answer. And so really it comes down to definitions. And if your definition of free will is that man in their natural sinful state can choose any moral decision, then yes, we deny free will. Because Jesus makes it very clear, there's at least one moral decision men cannot choose. 
and that's to come to him. You can't do it. You're enslaved to your sin and you cannot come to Christ unless you've been set free from it. And so that's where we get this doctrine of total depravity. And so here's where that sets the stage. Now you should already be thinking, however I understand salvation, it's sort of out of my hands. God's not going to save you because of your works. He's not going to save you because you were the smart one who decided, you know what, I'm going to believe in Jesus and all my dummy neighbors aren't. Apparently salvation is not up to us. And so that leads us to the rest of the acronym. The U stands for unconditional election. And I think that it is implicitly unconditional election in verse 44 as well. But let me first read you how the canons of Dort define unconditional election. They say this, Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. In layman's terms, before God even created anything, he actually determined beforehand those whom he would save. We often refer to this predestined group as the elect. Predestination is, as the canons of Dort say, not an award for some good quality that God foresaw in you. It's not a reward for him looking down the corridors of time and seeing that you would do this or that or be this person. No, it's sheer grace. It's sheer mercy. It's not based on you. It's based on God's own counsel of his own will that he elects a particular people. Now, I'll be frank. I don't think the unconditional part of election is necessarily in John 6. But I do think the, the general concept of election is very much present in John chapter 6. Let's look at verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so the only way a person can come and be in Christ is if the Father draws that person. So God must initiate. The Father must do something in you before you can come to Christ. So already we have choosing happening here. The Father is already the ultimate chooser of who comes to Christ because he must initiate. The Father is the one who draws people to his Son and those who does not draw don't come because they can't. <laughs> So the Father is choosing some people to draw, and if he doesn't draw them, they can't come. So God here is clearly making a choice of some over others for salvation. And the classic answer to that is, well, no, because we think God chooses this for everyone. He draws everyone, but some people resist that draw. We're going to look at that when we get to the I, but let me just show you why I don't think you can maintain that, because what does verse 44 say happens to those who are drawn? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who are drawn are raised. See, the only way you can make the case that everyone is drawn is if everyone is raised. But not everyone is raised. There, unfortunately, I don't say this with glee in my heart at all, there will be people in hell. So it is evident that the Father does not draw everyone. He doesn't draw every single person. And so again, we see a particularity, a choosing. Now the question is, who is God choosing then? In time, as he works in people, who is he choosing? Well, I think Jesus hinted at this back in verse 37. Look at verse 37 with me. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. When Christ was sent into the world, the Father already had a particular people in mind for him to save. The Father was going to give to the Son, or as he says later in verse 44, draw to the Son a particular people he already had in mind before he even sent the Son. The Son came into the world to receive a particular people from the Father. And he draws that particular group. And so here in these two verses, I argue is at least implicitly lies the doctrine of election, that God had a select particular people in mind when he sent the Son into the world, and he promised to give his Son that people. That's where we get unconditional election. Now, if you're offended, I've got bad news for you. Because it gets worse. Because all of this really nicely leads into the next letter in the acronym, which is by far the most controversial, the L, which stands for limited atonement. Although it's my opinion that limited atonement has been made a little bit more offensive than it needs to be by improperly talking about it. Let me say how, let me just teach you how the canons of Dort describe it. And it's almost hard to detect. It's, it's not as crass as contemporary online Calvinists have made it. It was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, that part's important, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father. So according to Dort, Christ came in to save a particular people, but that's made up of the whole world. Right? So he came in to save the world categorically, not without any distinctions at all. But he came to save a particular people. And what's the chief act, what's the chief thing Christ did to accomplish salvation? Die on a cross. So if Christ came to save a particular people, and only that particular people, and he saves through his death, that means he died for that particular people and only for that particular people. This is why sometimes limited atonement is described as Jesus only died for the elect. And there's some truth to that. But again, I don't like the way that's phrased because that's actually an ambiguous statement that could be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Uh, we as, as Reformed theologians, we can actually affirm that just depending on what precisely you mean by that. In order to really understand the Reformed mindset, and what I'm going to try to show is in John 6, it lies under the issue of intent. When Jesus, when the Son, forgive me, when the Son of God came into the world, what was his intention? What was he trying to do? Did he come thinking, I'm going to try my hardest to save every last person. Was that what was on his heart? I'm, that's my goal. My goal is to save every single human being that's ever existed. Was that Christ's intention? And our argument is no. Christ's intention was to save only those whom the Father gives him. Look at verses 37 through 38 with me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? So let's put these two things together. Jesus did not come to earth to do anything other than whatever the Father commissioned him to do. And we know, based on 37, what that mission from the Father was. To save a people whom he gives to the Son. A particular people. And so this is why sometimes limited atonement is also, if you ever read a book, sometimes it might be called particular redemption. 
Christ came to save a particular people that the Father gave him. And, 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 and the important thing to put these verses together, let's say Christ came, no, my intention, maybe the Father has an elect in mind, but my intention, I'm going I'm to go above and beyond that. I'm going to try to save more. Now he's actually in rebellion to the Father's will. He's rebelling against it, but Jesus says the exact opposite. I have not come to do my will. I have not come to save whomever I want. I have come to save only those whom the Father has given me, and he will draw them to me. They will come, and I'll do it. I'll save them. The sovereignty of God and salvation. Now, in order for this elect group that Jesus came to die for to actually get saved, they have to believe in Jesus. Right? The text is very clear that God does not save the elect apart from faith. Right? It's not as if the world just, he just spins the dreidel and everyone does their own thing and he's got some people that will be saved no matter what happens. That, that's not how God works election into the fabric of history. The elect must be saved through faith. They must be saved through believing. This is scattered all throughout the text. For example, look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work that satisfies hunger. He says this again at the very end of our text. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He even said it earlier in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Okay? So for, in order for God's elect, whom He draws to the Son, whom Christ died for, in order for them to be saved, they must believe. They must be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And that process is the eye and tulip, what we call irresistible grace. That God irresistibly gives saving grace to the elect so that they will come to Christ in faith. It's the grace that every person has to have in order to come to Christ. Right? We've seen it already, but let's look at it again. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. That drawing, that, that verb on the Father's end, that action of the Father, that's what we call irresistible grace. And the word drawing is important because the kind of classic um, Arminian interpretation was to really soften the interpretation of that word up. They understood drawing as more like wooing or enticement, right? Just kind of wooing you. Come on, come to Christ. Let's go. Come on, you can do it. But the problem is kind of twofold. First and foremost, that's just not what the word means. That's not what the word draw means. If you went to draw water from a well, uh, you would not stand over the well and say, come on water, come on, let's go. I promise it's really good up here. No, to draw water from a well is a forceful action on your part where you irresistibly move the water against its will out of the well. As a matter of fact, let me make it more clear. If your mother sent you to draw water from the well and you came back and you said, hey, I drew water. And then she looked and your bucket was empty. And she said, well, where is it? He said, well, I drew it, but it didn't want to come. You know what she'd say? Then you didn't draw it. <laughs> the word drawing carries the completed action in the definition. Right? There's no such thing as drawing the water but not having any water. You can try to draw and fail to draw, but you can't draw and not get your outcome. The text is not saying that the Father tries to draw men to Christ, 
or he offers a drawing to men, it says he draws them. He accomplishes it. He brings them to the Son. By the way, every time this word is used elsewhere in the Bible, it's always used with this kind of efficacious action. For example, it's used later on in the book of John to describe men dragging a net of fish onto a boat. It's used twice in the book of Acts to describe a mob of people dragging someone they're mad at into the city courts. It's used in the book of James where he describes rich people as those who drag you into court. Every time it's used after this verse, it's, it's used as drag. <laughs> and it's clearly, obviously, there's movement happening. It's not a wooing. It's not an enticement. It's not even a leading. It's an accomplishment. God gets his elect to the Son. They don't resist it. He gets them there. And that's why the canons of Dort describe this, describe irresistible grace this way, that all those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous grace are certainly, unfailingly, and effectively reborn and do actually believe. Because the drawing of God is irresistible. And by the way, it's not just John 6, 44 I'm getting this from. I think Jesus makes it even more clear in verse 37. Look at what he says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me might come to me. All that the Father gives me, some will come, but some won't. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All not some, all will come. Jesus sees the drawing of the Father as an inevitable, infallible, unfailing work, so much so that it guarantees every last person who receives this work will be here. They're going to come. Now, there are oftentimes people who will take what I'm saying and they'll sort of distort it. They'll describe our God as like this really tyrannical, cruel, bully who just drags people to heaven against their will. Um, it's actually very common for them to describe this using a word that I don't even want to say from the pulpit. But you could probably imagine what I'm talking about when a person forces their will on an unwilling subject. Um, there's a really harsh crime that people will do that. And they'll call what we believe that. And, um, but I think verse 45 helps us to see that that's not exactly what we're talking about, right? So after Jesus says that there's this drawing in verse 44, notice how he describes it in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how, here's how we see uh, John understanding or Jesus really, understanding this drawing, this effectual drawing. Jjesus doesn't see it as like a forceful, uh, destroy your nature kind of a thing. No, Jesus sees it as an illumination, a teaching, a persuasion, turning the lights on. He's, he's really, what he's doing is all men in their natural state, by the way, had a natural knowledge of God. We only are now in rebellion and born atheists, born against God because of sin. In our natural condition, we had a natural knowledge of God. So Christ is not forcefully destroying your nature. He's doing the exact opposite. He's giving it back. He's not overcoming and destroying your nature. He's returning it to you. He's fixing it. He's reigniting the flame that we were all designed to have. And he opens up our minds and our souls and he teaches us, the Father teaches us, and that has this infallible, effectual drawing. I've got to have this Jesus that I now understand. 
It's a gentle and sweet, irresistible grace. But it is infallible. Now, here's how we have to conclude. All of these wonderful works of God, of election and drawing and irresistible grace, like all of these would be completely nullified if at any point in time the elect who are drawn to Christ and believe then decide, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And they walk away. Then all of God's plan of predestination, all of his drawing, it would be thwarted. And so thankfully, we maintain that this passage also teaches us the P in tulip, known as the perseverance of the saints, which the canons of Dort define this way. Because of the remnants of sin dwelling in believers, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. In layman's terms, here's what they're saying. If you were to lose your saving faith, you would then lose your salvation. And so a crucial part of Jesus' mission is to persevere your saving faith, which then in turn perseveres your salvation. And so that's why the, the common way of saying it, again, this to me is not preferably the way of saying it, but this is why people will oftentimes define this as the idea that you cannot lose your salvation. And we teach that because we think our salvation is ultimately grounded and gripped by Christ's strength and not our own. And I think that Jesus does try to teach us that pretty clearly in this text. Look at verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus promises to do two things with those the Father gives to him. They're really one thing, just the negative and the positive, you can think of it. The first thing he promises is to never lose them. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will not lose any of them. He will not lose the elect. So he is now entrusting the salvation of God's people to himself. Not to them, not to your strength. It's now on Christ's tab. And he says, I won't lose them. So imagine if you were drawn to the Son by the Father... And you believe, and the son says, okay, I've got him. I'm going to raise him up on the last day. And then you walk away and lose your salvation. Now the son has to report back to God on judgment day and say, hey, by the way, some of those you gave me, uh, I lost a few of them. They were really stubborn. I'm sorry. He would fail. It's a failed mission. And it's also a failed promise. Why? Because he not only promises not to lose them, he promises positively to raise them. Of all those the Father gives me, I shall lose none, but raise him up on the last day. He is promising to raise the elect. And that's not just the general resurrection. This is glory, the resurrection unto salvation. Christ guarantees to never lose and to entail the salvation of his elect. By the way, this is also in... What other verse? You guessed it. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you've been drawn to the Father, you will be raised. Verse 44 is Jesus' guarantee 
to save God's elect people. Now, there is just so much rich theology in John 6. And don't worry, this is not the last time you're going to read these words. We're, we're going to work through this. This is a large chunk. We're going to keep working through even this very text. This is just a, a basic foundation for a moment. But what I wanted just to briefly see this large text because I just love the way Jesus gives us this incredible insight into his own mission. Like here's where Jesus is very explicitly telling us why God sent him into the world. And in explaining his mission, he had to begin by explaining to us about the sovereignty of God and salvation. That God is the one in total control of the salvation of his people. And so I think we could really summarize this. You know, TULIP is technically the summary, but that's a, an acronym with a lot of details. Why don't we just make this even more simple? What is the general gist of Jesus' mission? I would say it's not even TULIP. It's simply this. Whoops. That God sent his son into the world to guarantee the salvation of the elect. This is Jesus' mission. He was sent in the world to guarantee the salvation of the elect. If you were to leave today and someone said, hey, what would you learn in church today? This is it. Or it would be even better just memorize John 6, 44. <laughs> and God sent his son in the world to guarantee the salvation of the elect. That we who belong to Christ were given to him by our Father. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that by the power of his spirit, our father teaches us of Christ. He opens our hearts to him and he draws us to Christ in faith. Meaning that Christ accepts us just as we are. <laughs>